0: From Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues Podcast. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, April 21st. Welcome to the 15th episode of the Alcohol Issues Podcast. This week we focus on the pro-health taxes and specifically the design, potential and window of opportunity for better alcohol taxation. For the 15th episode of the Alcohol Issues Podcast, we welcome Dr. Evan Bletcher from the World Health Organization. Evan is an economist in the Fiscal Policies for Health Unit at the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. His work focuses on tax policy and its influence on health behaviors including tobacco, alcohol and sugar-sweetened beverages, particularly in low- and middle-income countries. Evan is responsible for the development of new streams of work including alcohol and sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. Evan was previously in the Tobacco Control Economics Unit where he led tobacco tax efforts in the African region. Prior to joining WHO, he was a senior economist in the Health Policy Center at the University of Illinois at Chicago a senior economist in the Health and Economic Policy Research Program at the American Cancer Society, an affiliate in the Southern Africa Labor and Development Research Unit at the University of Cape Town, where he served as the project director of the Economics of Tobacco Control Project, and an honorary associate professor in the School of Economics, University of Cape Town. In our conversation, we go deep into the weeds of health taxes, focusing more specifically on alcohol excise taxes. We discuss different terms for health taxation and what they actually reveal about the purpose and potential of such taxes. Evan and I talk for instance about the term sin taxes and Evan shares his analysis of the weaknesses of such a framing. I also ask Evan about the evidence base for health taxes in general and alcohol taxes in particular and how confident we can actually be in the knowledge that we have to date. Evan shares deep insights into how to design effective alcohol taxes and we discuss their primary purpose and objectives. In the policy discussion of alcohol taxation, often there seems to be a conflict in the minds of policymakers between either raising revenue through alcohol taxes or reducing alcohol harm. So I wanted to know from Evan if this conflict really exists and how we can best understand the potential of alcohol taxation. I really enjoyed this in-depth and far-ranging conversation about alcohol taxation. We discussed, for example, also how WHO is working to support more countries to develop evidence-based alcohol taxes. And I was inspired by Evan's analysis and view of the window of opportunity that seems to exist for health taxes in general and alcohol taxes in particular. Given the moment in time where a public health crisis and an economic crisis are affecting people, communities and societies severely, I hope you will find this conversation useful and timely to chart a way forward and out of the crisis with the help of pro health taxation. To get our conversation started, I asked Evan about his background and what his work at WHO is all about. By way I'll give you a little
1: bit of background and it sort of leads into how this developed.
0: Um,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm an economist by training and, and not a health economist. I think that's it's a bit confusing to people because I think if you're an economist who works works on something about health, you know, you must be a health economist. But health economics as a discipline is 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 particularly interested in in issues around health care and the provision and financing of healthcare and issues around equity in healthcare and the cost effectiveness of treatment. The allocation, efficient, allocative efficiency uh, issues, et cetera, in, in, in healthcare. Um, my background is not in that at all. My background comes more from uh, a fiscal policy and an applied economics perspective. Uh, and um, I've, I've really been working on tax policy and the design of tax policy and understanding how tax policy both affects fiscal policies in terms of the revenue side of it, but also how it affects uh, individual behavior. All, all population behavior, all taxes in some way influence behaviors, um, whether, whether, whether to a large degree or a small degree, there's there's always a behavioral uh, outcome from, from most government policy and, and tax is no different. Um, most of my career, I've actually been working on tobacco taxes um, and uh, um, I've worked specifically with WHO on tobacco tax technical assistance with member states uh, uh over a number of years um over time i think uh you know whos work on on alcohol policy and even nutrition policy uh has started to evolve and i think there's a lot greater prominence particularly on the alcohol these days uh, and as that's happened i think the interest within um who to work m- more extensively on alcohol taxes has increased uh it's not to say that WHO has ignored alcohol tax uh, but yeah. there's certainly a lot more attention to it, and um, as that has developed, um, so um, you know WHO has had to adapt, and uh, the adaptation has been in the last few years uh, creating a, 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 a specific unit that that works on tax policy and and NCD risk factors, primarily initially tobacco, but now also alcohol and Uh, sugary drinks and and other issues around nutrition and hopefully down the line environment. So our team is responsible then for the development of the thematic, sorry, not the thematic work on alcohol policy but that methodological work around taxes um, and and how taxes influence health behaviors. Um, Our work is broken down primarily into two areas. One is the normative side, um, you know, which is one of WHO's core roles about providing um, you know, synthesis of key best practices, recommendations to member states, collecting yeah. and synthesizing data, identifying trends, et cetera. Uh, and the second one is providing technical assistance to member states. Uh, yeah. So working with member states on development of policy, evaluation of policy, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the nutshell of, of, of the work and how it fits into the broader architecture. Um, in event itself,
0: And if I may ask Evan, thanks for this introduction, why did you get into the health part of fiscal policy? what was it that was interesting for you there? Yeah, I think that it, it actually happened by accident. Um, you know if
1: you if you speak to many people who are studying economics, you know as an undergraduate student and you think that you ask them you know what are you planning to do with them? I don't think you find many of them that are going to tell you outright that they want to work on health taxes or on taxes yeah. that influence health behaviors. It's it's probably quite abstract. And if I speak to a lot of the colleagues that I went to uh, university or undergraduate with, they and I, and I tell them that this is what I what I do. They probably be like huh, I didn't realize economists were interested in that. Um You know, I I originally had started to work on um, as an undergraduate thesis. I, I needed to do a, a thesis, and I was working on um, uh, what was what was a hot topic in South Africa at a time, which was monetary policy. Everyone, all economists were interested in this, and one thing came to another. And I, I, I met a, an, um, a young economist there who got uh, assigned to me as a supervisor. And his name was Corné van Bulbier, and Corné was working on uh, um, some projects related to his PhD at the time on uh, on, on tobacco taxes, and, and I started working with him on that, and uh, it. it 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 sort of drew me into the area. And and, and certainly it became more and more interesting over time because uh, what became apparent to me is that, you know, within a sort of an ability for economic policy to influence health in such a direct manner, there aren't that many. Um, But also what I found interesting is that, uh, you know, we look at other areas of, of sort of the health that were important in South Africa at the time, um, infectious diseases and things like HIV and TB were 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 sort of the the, the, the issues of, of of concern, and yeah. and the juxtaposition between that and the tax policies was was ultimately the industries, uh, and in other areas of public health, you didn't I didn't quite get a sense that there were lobbyists running around lobbying government to promote products. Uh, that had these health externalities. You know, the, the mosquitoes, didn't, you know, malaria mosquitoes, didn't have a lobbyist running around uh, trying to advocate for why they're important. Uh, and and this this sort of to me became apparent as an important uh, and interesting area of economics in that we had these sort of a, a totally exogenous set of sort of um, sort of actors on the on the commercial side. Advocating against what might actually be considered good policy, uh, and and that's what to some extent drew me in. There was a, sort of a, uh, a strategic element to it, rather than purely having to define good policy. In many other areas of work, we can clearly define what is a best practice, what is a good policy, uh, without with 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 less controversy. And the challenge becomes how to sort of implement that. Um, but that's not the case in, in 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 particularly in broader NCDs. Not just Alcohol or tobacco.
0: Yeah, thanks for this explanation. I think um, it's very interesting uh, to understand that you come from the monetary policy, as you know now, um, very often um, public health advocates, communities that want to advance uh, individuals' communities' health, they are being branded as nanny state. And you know, like there would be a specific ideology that people and communities are pursuing. So I think it's very interesting to understand what your path has been here. Uh, I think your path in itself uh, debunks this kind of uh, ideological approach to, um, in this case, health taxes. And I think, Evan, you have mentioned some interesting things already. I will pick them up now. And I think if I heard you correctly, you talk about health taxes, but you also called it Taxes that influence health behavior. So, can you explain what those taxes are and how you prefer to call them? Because I think that's instructive as well how to think about this.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different names that get thrown around and terms that get thrown yeah. around for them, and and some of them mean specific things and some of them don't. I think you know, I, I I think some there are times where we need to be you know. I don't want to say careful, but specific about the term that we use and there are other times that, that, that we don't. Uh, for example, I think you know, more commonly these days you hear about people talking about health taxes or pro-health taxes, as, as, as some others have labeled them. Um, a, a more historic way people refer to them as sin taxes, for example. Um, you know, firstly, you know, I like I like health taxes, and I, I'll, I'll explain why in a moment, but but really, health taxes are any taxes that are uniquely applied to products that generate significant health-related externalities and internalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so products like tobacco, or alcohol, but also certain unhealthy foods, whether it be sugary drinks, for example, as one, or even you know, dirty fuels, fossil fuels that, that that generate a lot of air pollutants. And I think that's an under uh, an under considered sort of. Uh, contributor to morbidity and mortality in many developing countries. Um, but what I mean is by uniquely applied is that they're applied to some things and not others. So we're picking which products to apply them to. Um, so something like a sales tax, you know, a VAT or a general sales tax applies to all goods and services, um, you know, and uh, with very few exceptions. Uh, and so applying um, a sales tax, um, to a product that generates an externality doesn't change the relative prices of any products and that's, it's not unique to, to let's say tobacco or alcohol and import tariff or customs duties um, differently um, because that only apply to imported products. So it's really only a- affecting where something is um, produced rather than where it's consumed. It's just changing the prices of domestically produced product to an, a, a, an internationally produced product. So those types of taxes aren't going to uh, affect behaviors of specific products. So the types of taxes that we're really talking about here are excise taxes. An excise tax is a tax related to consumption, but that's levied very early in the supply chain, either at the the point of manufacture or at the point of importation. And it allows us to uniquely target a very narrow range of products. It also allows us to target not just the narrow range of products, but uh, with unique rates, You know, like a sales tax rates are generally the same for all products. This allows us to apply different rates and different products and even to structure those taxes differently. So these types of taxes are all inherently excise taxes. That's the technical term when we speak to ministries of finance and revenue authorities. We're very clear about excise taxes to differentiate them from the other. Um, Now, historically, some people have called them sin taxes. Um, at, 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 At some points in time, it's been a widely... Used term and it's a generally accepted or understood term in many countries the Philippines for example um it's it's I think it's put in their law they call it a syntax um I don't want to say I'm opposed to it but I generally don't like the term a syntax because it implies that the behaviors drinking or smoking or drinking a soda or burning a you know a, a fuel for example is a sinful behavior it's a vice yeah. as opposed to a virtue and I think that's a very uh, poor framing of it. It sort of belies how many people, for example, with, with, with alcohol abuse uh, are suffering from, uh, from addiction, uh, sometimes with mental illness, often from um, poor or deprived socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, you know, so, so it, it sort of puts a stigma on that. Secondly, it, uh, um, it, it sort of places the blame on individual behaviors, and I mm-hmm. think that's wrong. Um, you know, we need it, we we the blame on consumption here should not be on individual behaviors. It's a function of many different things, including um society, sometimes heritage, sometimes culture, sometimes as we as already mentioned, socioeconomics, but also it takes responsibility away from uh, manufacturers. Um, mm. it takes responsibility away from government who often haven't necessarily done what they could or should be doing in terms of the policy environment. So I don't I don't like calling them some taxes. And you know, I think that's why a lot of people have started to talk about them as health taxes or pro-health taxes in recent years, because it's, it's about framing it in terms of what we what the objective is. Uh, and the objective more and more and more is around excise taxes is becoming around about the health benefits, the health outcomes, um, and improved health outcomes through health behaviours. Uh, that are associated with improved tax policies, better tax policies, um, and so it, it really, in that way, it's laying down, uh, laying down a market. But at the same time, you know, on a technical level, when we communicate with with the practitioners, we we, we most likely continue to refer to them as excise taxes as opposed to health taxes, which is really the, the advocacy framing of it, so to speak.
0: I get it. And I I really agree with the three, maybe even four points you made about the weakness or the problems inherent in the syntax framing. And I wanted to stick with um, one point you made here, that it places the blame um, at the individual level, at individual behavior, and it lets um, the government and also the alcohol industry, if we talk about um, alcohol taxes—it lets the alcohol industry off the hook. Uh, Evan, can you explain alcohol taxation, alcohol excise taxes? Are they about you know this individual person in the shop not buying two bottles, or are they about the population level effect? Because we hear this very often that taxes are for prohibiting that uh, normal people buy alcohol. Um, and and i feel like there is this as you were saying also this population level behavior dimension so what do you think about uh, this tension there yeah i think you're, i think there's both elements to
1: it i don't think it's one's wrong or one's right um and and it's not to say that every individual reacts the same way or reacts as as planned i think um you know, at the end of the day, I think you, you'll often hear the story about if you if you engage people on it in the, in the general public, you've always got the person who'll say to you, "Oh, but they raised the tax and I didn't change." And you know, um, probably it's probably true. Um, you know, not every individual is going to respond. So, on a population level, we do know um, what the evidence is, and we do understand, for example, what's called the price elasticity, which is this technical term which refers to the responsiveness of the consumers in terms of their behavior to the change in price. Uh, and we, we, we know that alcohol products, like tobacco as well, are relatively price elastic, uh, which means that consumers' response is less than proportional to the change in price. Uh, but that does mean that consumers respond to the change in price. So that occurs on, uh, at a population level. But in order for that to occur on a population level, it means that the population is simply a collection of individuals. Uh, So it does work at an individual level. What we do know is there's a lot of heterogeneity within the population. Some people react differently to others. So for example, poorer people are more price responsive for for any, for almost all consumption of of goods and services. The poorer you are, the more responsive you are to price changes because your budget is smaller. Uh, The same for, for younger populations. Uh, We also know that younger populations are are more price responsive. That means if those people are more price responsive, older people or richer people are less price responsive, which shows that those individual level changes that we will see are going to differ across and within the population. uh, But at a population level, it it, it is going to have significant behavior change. Um, So uh, that price elasticity works through a number of different channels, um, you know, and, and. what I mean by working through a number of different channels is um, when, when prices increase, it's going to increase cessation. Uh, So particularly for tobacco where so much of the harm is related to, um, to sort of a more binary usage than, than, than a linear sort of function. Um, You know, it increases cessation. Um, It reduces initiation, particularly amongst youth. We know that higher taxes and prices um, delay often youth initiation and. delaying youth initiation can have significant population level benefits and it can reduce intensity of use. So even those who maybe don't quit or do still start, uh, their intensity of use, the, the, the amount that they drink or smoke or uh, consume of sugary drinks over uh, over time will decrease. Um, so we, we do have pretty good knowledge on this and there's different sorts of uh, evidence for this. Uh, you know, we've got aggregate level population Elasticity estimates. We were able to then break that down into smaller populations. Um, we have, uh, and we have a lot of evidence on this, particularly now uh, a big uh, amount of systematic reviews, which is sort of seen as gold standard on the scientific side. And we've got more and more studies as well looking at things around the initiation rates, cessation rates, delayed initiation, etc.
0: I wanted to ask one more follow-up question, um, and that is, you already talked about. Um, that uh, pro-health taxes or health taxes um, are uniquely applied to products that generate externalities and some internalities, I think you said. Can you explain this, please? What are externalities and uh, internalities? Sure. So uh, first thing is the the primary sort of
1: economic case to be made for for justifying uh, excise taxes um, or, you know, as, as... some, some economists like to talk, talk about them as corrective taxes, is that they generate uh, externalities and internalities. So internalities are the, the unintended consequences that are borne by the user. So um, the, the, per, the illness that you create in yourself over a period of time from smoking or unhealthy drinking, whereas the externalities are the um, unintended consequences not borne by the user but borne by society at large. So, mm. uh, we could think about secondhand smoke in the case of smoking, uh, potentially, uh, injuries and deaths from drunk driving, uh, mm. in the case of, uh, in the case of alcohol, where a lot of that burden, for example, on, you know, if we look at drunk driving, a lot of that burden in terms of injuries are not by the person who was consuming the alcohol or by calling innocent bystanders, people in the other car, pedestrians, etc. So, um the fact that they generate these these unintended consequences um but internally for yourself or externally in terms of the externality is what creates that sort of justification um to sort of delve into sort of the more economic principles often you'll hear of um uh, uh, the concept of a Pigouvian tax which is that the tax specifically uh, is trying to correct for the fact that the retail price of the product does not actually imply the full cost of consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's the taxes to ensure that the retail prices increase to to justify the full cost of consumption, which is really the cost of these externalities and internalities. And a lot of that comes out in the construct of uh, when people make that decision uh, to drink or make that decision to initiate drinking or initiate smoking, they're not fully taking into account those future costs, the externalities and internalities. Um, or they're potentially discounting the future costs uh, too much. Um, you know, so uh, 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 you know we know that smoking initiation and, and alcohol initiation occurs at relatively young ages in adolescence, uh, and it's it's not a, it's not a stretch to argue that um, at, at, at younger ages one may not be able to to uh, to fully um, conceptualize those costs as internalities and externalities that may be occurring a long way into the future. And certainly with smoking, probably further into the future than than than, than with alcohol often.
0: Yeah, this is super helpful. Um, I think this point that the retail price doesn't cover uh, the full costs of consumption. There is even this kind of concept um, when it comes to alcohol excise taxes called charge for harm, which I think uh, applies to or reflects this point that you have made, Evan. Um, And now you have already mentioned why you know what you know or why economists know what they know about uh, pro-health taxes. You talked about the price elasticity and behavior change and that there are different kinds of evidence like uh, systematic reviews, um, uh, studies of uh, initiation delay and so on. So I just wanted to ask a little bit more concretely if you can um, explain a little bit more, Evan, what do we know about um, pro-health taxes, and how how confident can we be about the data, the knowledge that you at WHO have about this?
1: Yeah, I think yeah, There's one thing about you know saying that we've got a lot of studies published in journal on elasticities, and, and we do. And there's you know, the fact that we we're talking about having systematic reviews means that there's a big edit a big body of evidence out there. You can't do systematic reviews if we don't have that. Um, you know, how does that then go into practice? I think that's the, uh, the really interesting thing, how we translate that into sort of um, the, the policy action um, and then look at the sort of empirical examples um, of where we have then had, had policy change and what the outcomes have been. Um, and I think that's something where on the, on the tobacco side, I think we've got a lot of experience. So rather than calling it evidence, let's call that experience. Um, and there's a lot of experience uh, on the tobacco side in terms of countries that have engaged in significant policy change on on, on taxes. Uh, and in the last few years, we've started to see like really good case studies in in, in lower middle income countries as well, um, where we've had like significant, really impressive tobacco tax reforms in places like South Africa, in Kenya, in the Gambia. I mean, these are very different countries. And into Asia, we can look at at some very significant reforms in the Philippines, which uh, became became sort of a, a very you know, famous uh, example of that in 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 2012 and, and several years onwards. Um, when we come to practice, I think what we what we see is that there's a lot more important than just a price elasticity. Um, I think it, it really does become as well about policy design um, and policy implementation you know, I think the design element is often underlooked. I think you'll, a lot of, a lot of advocates will say, oh, let's raise taxes. And, you know, I've, I'm, I'm quietly in my own head, sort of banging my head against the wall, because um, there's a lot more to it than raising taxes. You know, how we design those taxes is, is critically important. Um, you know, how we are able to then map out a policy process with government, how are we able to make sure that, they're properly implemented and that, that tax actually gets collected and uh, and then properly evaluate that, that becomes really important. Um, yeah. But for me, I think the sort of the key element is, uh, I would say there's two key elements to it. One is the policy design. Uh, with tobacco, it's a little bit simpler. When you move to alcohol and things like sugary drinks, the policy design becomes more complicated and far more important. And then the second element of it is just to to sort of see what these what the long-term goal is and our indicators are. And specifically, I like to focus on affordability because that's the critical, that's the critical driver um, um, over time if you look at a period of time. Uh, part of the powerfulness of taxation is that it's not just something that we implement once often we walk away. It's something that we're able to, uh, to implement over a period of time and continuously work on and continuously get. Uh, policy results as, as uh, well, sorry, health results as a result of policy. Um, mm. But in order to make sure that that occurs over time, uh, we've got to make sure that we reduce affordability consistently and over time.
0: Yeah. And so, how much do you know? I, I would agree with you. I think um, in the world of tobacco control, it's quite impressive to see what countries have done. Um, I have visited some of those countries that you have named. So, how much do we know for alcohol taxation because i think some of the countries that you have named also implemented alcohol yeah. taxation but it's fewer isn't it so is uh, the confidence then lower or how do you think about it yeah i think there's a, there's there's a lot to it yeah um you know and
1: the reality is that tobacco taxes are still an under-implemented tool but a far more implemented tool than alcohol taxes so it's like there's a continuum i don't i don't want to if i had to say that alcohol or tobacco taxes is a well-implemented tool i'd probably have colleagues you know phoning me very quickly to to correct me on that because i think there's a lot of high consumption countries that haven't made a lot of progress on tobacco taxation i don't want to name and shame But there's some very large countries with very large smoking prevalences that have done very little on tobacco taxes. Alcohol, though, I think, broadly speaking, is not... is Alcohol taxes are are used and implemented in almost every country in the world. However, they're not well designed in many of these countries. In many of these countries, they're actually poorly designed. Uh, And certainly, alcohol taxes have not been increasing, I would say, at all. Globally, I mean,
0: yeah.
1: yes, they're are individual countries, but on a global level, not at all. If we look at at an indi- at, at affordability, which I think is a great indicator of looking at this, uh, in the early in, in the nineteen nineties, we had a situation where alcohol, or sorry, tobacco was becoming more affordable in developing countries, lower middle income countries, and less affordable in high income countries. If we look in the last ten years, that picture's changed. We now see that. Tobacco is becoming less affordable in the majority of countries in the world. It doesn't matter whether it's high income countries or low and middle income countries. Um, And that's not accidental. Um, What we find is that if we take a sort of a step back in history and sort of look at what is the genesis of alcohol taxes and tobacco taxes, why is it almost every country in the world has some form of alcohol tax? Um, It's because if we go back 100 years and look at tax systems in general, um, you know, we look at tax systems now in, in, in most countries, income taxes and or that make up the large majority of government revenues. I think in some countries, it's more towards that and some countries more towards income taxes. If you go back 100 years ago, the biggest, uh, the, the, the biggest collection um, for governments came from excise taxes and customs, um, customs and excise. So import tariffs and customs. That was almost universal. Income taxes were a much smaller proportion. Uh, VAT and sales taxes did not exist. They weren't on the radar. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we look at the US, for example, like around 1912, you look at alcohol excise taxes were about uh, roughly 30% of government revenue. You look at it now, alcohol taxes for federal government revenue in the US is negligible. It's probably, it's it's, it's less than, absolutely less than 1%, probably less than a tenth of 1%. So there's been this massive change in in in, in where governments get revenues from, um, and and that in itself is probably good because it's allowed it's allowed the development of of strong governments, of better infrastructure, of much better social programs, etc. Yeah. Particularly in developed countries where where poverty has fallen dramatically as a result. So, but that's the pretext for for alcohol taxes was that it was always excise taxes were always originally revenue generating. That was the goal. Um, most excise taxes were on luxury goods. Um, mm-hmm. t- the tobacco and alcohol were included in there. Um, and But you would find a broad range of luxury goods as part of that excise taxes. And then you know, as the systems evolved, a lot of those excise taxes became negligible because governments weren't needing to raise them to raise revenues because of this burgeoning income tax and back system. And a lot of them got eliminated. And and to some extent, alcohol and tobacco stayed, primarily because they were the most inelastic products. And thus was still generating a decent revenue stream. And so governments kept them. Um, At some point, though, tobacco shifted. And the focus on tobacco shifted to being primarily for health. I think that starts in the 1960s when there's this uh, sort of clear consensus develops around about the role of smoking and smoking-related disease, particularly lung cancer. Very famous Surgeon General's report, and countries started to raise taxes, or at least high-income countries started to raise taxes on tobacco products because of now the concern around health and the externalities. Um, then, in 1999, the World Bank came along and published a book called "Curbing the Epidemic." It's actually a little, a really little book, but it's really important because it's it's one of the first. It's the first time a major economic institution came out and spoke about the role of tax policy. And economic policy within the construct of uh, tobacco use. And this is not that, this is around the similar time when the World Bank's World Development Report for the first time focused on health. Um, and so it, the, the, there's, there's, there's a movement at that point within uh, the international financial institutions towards start thinking about, about it. And that certainly changed it on, on, on tobacco. And I think we've seen the progress over the last 20, 30 years the massive investment that's gone into work on tobacco taxes, the massive interest, whether it's from WHO, the World Bank, even the IMF, the UNDP, civil society organizations, academia, et cetera. Mm. Uh, Why hasn't this happened on alcohol? Uh, And that then becomes the big question because we haven't had these major publications then coming out from from the economic institutions that have have then pivoted alcohol. Um, So alcohol tax is still seen um, in most countries as a revenue-generating tool. It's a stable revenue-generating tool because alcohol consumption rates remain uh, stable and not in many countries, not declining uh, rapidly. I think they are declining in in several countries, but not rapidly. And so it's become a very predictable revenue stream for governments. And they've never then framed, it has ever been framed as a health tax per se It's just a very strong revenue generator. Uh, And if it's uh, as a revenue generator, it hasn't then got the attention in terms of how we design that tax for health purposes as opposed to revenue purposes, because um, the goals might be different. When revenue is the goal, it's not necessarily raising revenue that might be the goal. It might be keeping revenue stable as the goal. Um, and, And that's what I think we see in many countries. So governments are are relatively happy with the stability of the revenue stream they're getting on alcohol excise taxes. And it's not on their focus that they need to reform this or think about this because of uh, the use or the potential use um, as a health promotion tool.
0: Yeah, and this is super helpful. I even like um, this kind of historical context that you have drawn up. Uh, I came to think of, I think it's even... Adam Smith, who recommended liquor taxes as a very good source um, for government yeah. action. So I think just to underline there your historical context, and then, Adam, uh, Evan, you have already uh, spoken about this kind of conflict between revenue generation and uh, public health impacts so or behavior change. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper and uh, just ask you, is this a conflict Um I think if you could talk a little bit more about uh, these two elements, uh, alcohol tax design and uh, alcohol affordability. Uh, So can governments have both, um, making alcohol more affordable, raising the revenue, but reducing consumption and reducing harm, or where is the trade-off then? And I think that's then also where it's important for you to discuss the design, right? Mm. So I think
1: certainly in the short term there's actually no conflict um you know in the very long run there becomes a conflict um we should be so happy that we're able to design policy that there is such an such an impressive long-run effect that it would actually be coming into conflict so we shouldn't see that as a bad thing if it eventually does we see this now in for example with with tobacco taxes in australia and the united kingdom where it's coming under this long-term pressure because Uh, revenues are, are without further tax increases, revenues would decline year on year because rates of use are falling quite rapidly. But that's taken 30, 40 years of very deliberate and significant tax increases to achieve that. But in the short run, there's no conflict. And it goes back to the elasticity that I spoke about earlier. And the inelasticity of a product, um, of these products generally means that the decline in consumption is less than proportional to the increase in price. Uh, and the result of that means that when we raise taxes, the let's say we increase the tax rate by 10%, the decline in consumption is significantly less than 10%. And thus the total revenue pool uh, rises. And I think we've seen countless uh, uh, experiences and country examples um, of increases in taxes causing increases in revenue. Um, You know, and some of those examples that we spoke about earlier, even on on the alcohol tax side, South Africa and the Philippines both increased alcohol taxes uh, quite a bit over different periods of time and saw very significant increases in in revenues as a result. So that inelasticity means that in the short term, at least, there isn't a, a conflict between the two. I think often what we need to do uh, is we 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 in 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 doing technical assistance with governments with member states particularly with the ministries of finance and and, and revenue authorities is to build analytic models with them so that they understand what the revenue impact is because you know it's one thing we can convince them that this is good health policy and in many cases your ministries of finance and and revenue authorities really do like to be uh Really, do like to have it framed as a health policy. One, it, it it's it's it actually makes them feel that their work is a little bit more about counting dollars and cents. Um, mm-hmm. But it also it also allows them to to um, to to better advocate for for increasing taxes. You know, often increasing taxes is not, it's not a popular choice in many cases. And so, it, it's really useful for governments to be able to to frame and communicate how um, a tax policy purely wasn't a money grab and actually has uh, a, a, a much greater benefit for society as well, in addition to just the social programs that it might be able to to fund. So there uh, there, there isn't that conflict, and especially when we work with governments to, to build an analytic model so that they have a good understanding of just what those policy changes are likely to uh, to achieve. But that's in the policy design part becomes important, the affordability elements. So I, I think you made a slap hitch there, you said... Make make it more affordable. Let's let's make it less affordable. Um, Thank you. But, but uh, the, the the critical thing is is how we design the policy. So you know on, on tobacco, I think over the years we we provided governments with very clear and simple advice that all tobacco should be taxed the same, and that we want these specific taxes. So we can taxes can be implemented either as a an amount per volume, you know. Uh, one dollar per pack, or ten dollars per pack, or it can be a percentage of the price. So on tobacco, we've always advocated for, and we've we've worked hard with member states to to implement these specific taxes, these volume unit-based taxes, and the reason, and then to treat all of them equally. Uh, and the reason for that is a few things. One is it makes the cheapest products uh, it raises the prices on the cheapest products, and that's really important in reducing youth access, youth initiation. Um, but it also reduces the variation in prices within the category. And so thus it reduces the opportunity for, produce, for consumers to potentially trade down to cheaper product in response to tax increases. And so we get the best, uh, the best health outcomes as a result of those specific taxes. Um, at the same time, it also makes administering or collecting those taxes significantly easier. Um, it's much easier to count volume than it is to count value. Um, value in this in this case can be quite abstract um and then um additionally um there there we, we find that revenue streams are more predictable with specific taxes um that said when it comes to alcohol it becomes a little bit more complicated because um, the market is so much more heterogeneous um, and what we mean by that is we've obviously got different alcohol products we've got the main categories the beer spirits and wine but uh, even even within that there are a lot of um gray areas a lot you know we've seen a, a real development of of these ready to drink type products that sometimes yeah. can include wine and or spirits um, and so the product heterogeneity makes it a little bit more difficult um, we also have a much bigger gradient within some of these categories in terms of price and quality um, and the alcohol content can vary a lot as well uh, we've seen um, a lot of uh, lighter alcohol products come to market, um, in particularly in the beer side, and they actually some of that might be as a result of tax policy, and that's and that's a uh, sort of a challenge. On the one hand, lower alcohol products is probably good from a perspective, uh, in terms of perspectives of concentration of drinking and total ethanol consumption, but it also may make youth initiation easier. So there's a We've got to understand these trade-offs. The, the problem is that we can design a perfect tax policy, and what I mean by that is we can design a tax policy that tries to deal with all of these issues. So we can advise countries to say, right, you should have a specific tax and base that specific tax on the alcohol content because that would encourage producers to um, to to lower alcohol concentrations. It would encourage producers to shift their advertising and marketing to lower alcohol product. It would encourage producers potentially to differentiate prices by alcohol content make heavier alcohol more expensive Uh, and that 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 there's a lot of really good public health benefit from that however it's also going to potentially relative to having a volume-based specific tax it's also going to create a lot of price heterogeneity which means it's going to create a lot of cheap product so on top of that we would then say to countries well then you should put a price floor in there Mm -hmm. to or, or a tax floor um but then at the same time we also might say to countries well let's have ad valorem taxes on high value product so that we could also maximize the revenue yield from it but that's sounding like a very complicated system and so we've we we've we've got to develop much clearer guidance at least um to member states that take into account um their market because the markets Mm -hmm. differ from country to country that not only take into account their market, that 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 accounts for where harm in that country comes from. Uh, you know, in some countries, harm might be more related to some products than others, or more related to the pattern of drinking, and in other countries, it might be more the aggregate drinking. You know, my home country is South Africa, it's very much around the, con- the, the pattern of drinking and the concentration of drinking, which might be different to other countries. Um, so we've got to take all that into account, and then also take into account Um, government's capacity, Um, you know, how how strong or sophisticated is the tax collection authorities in order to implement these systems? You know, if we're going to implement or or, or encourage countries to implement taxes based on the alcohol content, that actually requires a large amount of capacity um, in in order to implement. So we've got all these uh, sort of challenges both from a health side, a tax administration side, a design side, that we need to bring together. Within that, um, that said, I think we're recognising this complexity, and we're recognising how we need to give better guidance to countries to do this. That it isn't the same one-size-fits-all approach that we've been able to do on tobacco, and that um, we need to we need to be uh, be able to give countries better support. Um, So in order to do that, we're putting together a a technical manual at the moment. Um, The working title is the WHO Technical Manual on Alcohol Tax and Price Policy. So not just tax, but we're focusing this on on price as well. Um, And the idea behind this is to give countries that guidance and that technical Mm -hmm. support. Um, You know, we developed a similar manual for tobacco taxation in 2010 you know shows going back to think about where the where the where the emphasis has been we developed our first edition of this on to, on tobacco in 2010 uh, and it's taken us um 11 years to to do that on alcohol as well um we've also actually recently published the second edition of the tobacco one earlier this month so it yeah. shows just how much i think a lot of a lot of the listeners will know about that one but um it, it shows that you know some how much sort of further ahead um the work on, on 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 tobacco has has been, um, and so the idea here is that we can give countries clearer guidance of that. And I think one of the clearest things that will come out of this is how countries need to focus on reducing affordability, um, and um, you know, as as being a sort of I don't want to say being the ultimate goal because the ultimate goal is to reduce uh, is to reduce mortality and m- morbidity related to alcohol uh, related abuse um and misuse but the key indicator the output indicator for tobacco for alcohol taxes uh really needs to be affordability because yeah. i think what we've seen is looking at the recent data um is that alcohol has been becoming more affordable in most countries in the world in the last you know whether you look at the last 10 years or the last 30 years it's yeah. a similar story and you know and and straight out, in many cases, it's not only just being becoming more affordable; it's becoming cheaper in, in in nominal terms as well.
0: Yeah, I think this is very important. Um, this point about affordability, um, and I liked. I think um, when you focus on giving clearer, better advice to governments, but I would even extend it because I liked um, the frame that you had, and that also applies to. Um, myself, Movendi International Civil Society Advocates, when you said earlier that we cannot just talk about raising alcohol taxes, so we, we have to have a more substantial conversation and, and a better frame. Uh, I think, Evan, you said then it's uh, we have to frame it about health. And so I wanted to ask you if you can help me with this. So what is actually the potential of um, alcohol taxation what what do you think resonates with governments? I liked also how you talked about the Ministry of Finance, that they don't just want to get money, they, uh, they also want to uh, do something good for society, so to say. So do you have um, some input, some experiences there in terms of this investment in health systems or improving the health of uh, people? What's the framing that works in terms of affordability, reducing consumption, and then the societal benefits.
1: Yeah, I think this becomes sort of, I'm I'm not an advocate, so um, I'm going to say that makes it sound bad, so I'm not, because obviously I I, I advocate for it, but professionally, I'm not the person who's within a civil society sort of sphere, who's working on building some public support and building a campaign for that. I'm I'm more of a technician, but I I think that, you know, the framing of it from the technical side, at least, and, and working with the governments and Now, I think, you know, at WHO, our stakeholders ultimately are the member states. We're a member state organization. And so um, we're always, um, I think, sort of inculcated at a a, a young age within WHO at least to, you know, that that we're always responsive to the member states and the needs of member states. And that's really what we we focus on um, as opposed to being sort of advocates. So advocacy becomes a part of that. You know, to go back to sort of what a Ministry of Finance does is, 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 is there's a little lot of different things that go on within a Ministry of Finance. And to some extent, one of the biggest things that they're doing is they're managing, you know, the, the government's budget. And whether that's whatever the process through which you know, it occurs differently in different countries, you know, they've got two sides of the budget. There's a revenue side and an expenditure side. And they can't work without each other. If governments don't collect any revenue, there's no money available for expenditure. Uh, and if they want uh to develop um, expenditure programs they they, they they need to be substantially paid for um and so i think ministries of finance are very uh, aware and acutely aware of the impact of of government spending and they do a lot of analytic work when uh when you know deciding what to spend on and how to spend on it um and uh, i think ministries of finance have been are generally quite proud of 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 whether it's an economic improvement, a health improvement, social improvements, etc. That come through the spending side of the budget. Uh, I think the 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 idea that the the problem then becomes is that the tax that gets collected um, in order to 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 fund the government's work, there's a very the linkage between that tax and your tax that you pay, whether it's as income tax or as VAT to the social services, the education that you might get is quite abstract because the money is fungible. You know, there's no way that you can connect the $1 that you paid to the benefit that you received. Um, so I think what what's nice about, about health taxes is that it really, it's one of the few towns where we can actually find a lot more of a tangible impact between the, the tax side and the use. Uh, a second thing you you sort of mentioned is, is, is the sort of, you know, can we then, Find greater linkages in terms of how it's spent, and I think you're you're hinting towards the sort of this, this constructive earmarking. Um, and I know it's it's uh, particularly amongst uh, people within public health, it's it's a common it's a common uh, topic. And uh, in some cases, earmarks have been very successful. Um, for example, in the Philippines, um, the the tax reforms that started in 2012 that have continued since on on both. Tobacco and alcohol. Uh, significant portions of that were directly earmarked into the expansion of universal health coverage. So, about I think it's about ninety percent of tobacco tax revenue and hundred percent of the alcohol tax revenue was um, was earmarked directly into the expansion of UHC. So, you know, there it's, it's an even more tangible benefit. But that said, um, this is it's something which is a bit of a touchy subject, and the reason why it's a bit of a touchy subject is. From a purely fiscal policy perspective, it's often thought of as being earmarking. Not, I'm not talking about earmarking these taxes specifically, but generally earmarking tax revenue to specific expenditures within a fiscal policy framework is often not seen as a good practice. And the reason being is, uh, you know, the, the people on the expenditure side in the Ministry of Finance are going to argue to us, well, if the program that you're talking about, this expenditure that it will fund is so important, then shouldn't it be important enough for for you or us to justify that expenditure from the general fiscus? and And I think that's a fair argument. The other side of it is is that it then be, creates budget rigidities. So we then put this money into this into this area right now. but in ten years, time if priorities change, um, are we are we stuck into spending money on something that is not that that might not be a good a, a high priority anymore? Uh, that's a sort of a, a, another consideration. A, a further consideration um, is that it then becomes, you you become sort of hooked on it, that what happens if we actually do so well that we end up like in Australia or the UK that revenue start falling? Does it undermine the longevity of the programs then that it's funding? And if we look at it, there's, there's great examples of, of really, of where this has happened with earmarks, for example, I lived in Atlanta in the u s for many years. There was a lot of controversy about lottery receipts being um, earmarked towards um, kindergarten education and then uh, and and uh, tertiary education and providing a lot of scholarships. Uh, and there was a lot of instabilities around this, you know, um at times, did it create an issue of, for example, uh, not enough money because lottery receipts has fallen, and, and 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 then it was basically saying that these programs ultimately were not a priority of the government that the government could fund it from the general fiscus. So there, there, were a lot purely from the from the from the finance side. There's a lot of concern about it. However, um, it certainly makes the implementation of the tax a lot more feasible. At the end of the day, if you're telling if we if we're telling the population that we want to implement a new much higher alcohol tax um, and that we're going to uh, spend that particularly not just necessarily within the health sector but even related to uh, to alcohol related policy to uh, whether it's education whether it's enforcement areas and in other in, in other areas whether it's treatment um, we're going to have a lot greater public support we're going to have a lot greater political support if we ensure that the proceeds on that are more likely to benefit in a much much stronger way than purely creating incentives for them to change behaviour, but create much more benefit uh, towards um, towards the the consumers. And when we look towards, for example, um, nutrition and, for, and 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 sugary drink taxes, which a lot of a lot more people advocating for sugary drink taxes now, can you imagine how much more powerful those instruments can be if we commit to taking those revenues, for example. Uh, and invest that into subsidizing healthier options. You know, not only could we, um, could we be changing the incentives for unhealthy options, but we could be improving incentives for healthier options. So that might be into fresh fruit and vegetables, for example, or, you know, making sure that we reinvest that money in, uh, in, in much better access to clean drinking water. Um, I, I worked on a, an SSB tax in the Seychelles several years ago. Seychelles is a really small country, um, but they did something really fantastic. And uh, it wasn't through a hard earmark, but the government committed to using some of those revenues to make sure that water fountains were installed in schools so that, uh, you know, kids were going to have much better access to clean drinking water and um, and, you know as 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 a a an earmark benefit of, of 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 the ssb tax so that that i think becomes a um a, a, it makes it, it makes the tax far more um publicly uh, popular so to speak as well um you know when we think about what is the actual sort of you know talk about the, the sort of potential impact of it um, I think you sort of asked that as well, and and it can be really big. So um, there was an important group last year called, the I think about even more than last year, but probably about three years ago that I was involved with, called the Bloomberg Summers Task Force for Fiscal Policies and Health. It was co-chaired by uh, by Michael Bloomberg and Larry Summers. Um, Larry Summers, a former U.S. Treasury Secretary and a very, very well-respected economist, academic economist. Um, And... Some of the analytic work that we did for that uh, for that commission is they tasked us with a with a, with a challenge and said what would be the outcome globally over a long period of time in terms of deaths averted, dallies saved, and revenue gained from um, various tax increases on tobacco, alcohol, and sugary drinks. They said let's do those three, um, and on alcohol alone is that a fifty percent increase in price induced by tax? So. A little bit convoluted because it's not a 50% increase in tax because the taxes vary so much around the world, um, but that if taxes increased in every country such that it resulted in a 50% increase in the price of alcohol, broadly defined, uh, what would it result in? Uh, and we estimated working with a group of epidemiologists and economists together, we were able to estimate that it could avert as many as 27 million deaths over a 50-year period. Um, To put that in perspective, that is several orders of magnitude higher than the death toll so far from COVID. Yeah. That's an extraordinarily large number. Um, We would be able to gain 547 billion life years. So if we took those 27 million deaths and we adjusted it for for the life years gained 547 billion life years, I mean, it's an extraordinary number. Um, and, in, and in addition, at the same time, it would be able to raise eighteen billion dollars in PPP adjusted terms uh, over that fifty-year period. Um, sorry, eighteen trillion. Sorry, I do not want to say billion. Eighteen trillion dollars, um, which again is an extraordinary amount of money. Yeah. The large majority of those debts virtual and life years gained is in low and middle-income countries, um, and about half the revenue in low and middle-income countries. So it's 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 quite extraordinary in terms of the big picture numbers and. You know, once you start getting into numbers and you're talking about tens of trillions and hundreds of billions, it's it's it seems so abstract because it's just so big. Yeah. Um,
0: can I just ask? Can you put the 50% price increase into context? Um, is this is this normal for tobacco that uh, tobacco products increased so much or? Is this, uh, you know, the the upper, the maximum level of uh, how not, much an alcohol product could increase in price? So, you know, I'd actually say that's not actually
1: particularly high. Um, mm. And that, that sounds like a little bit absurd, that a 50% increase in price wouldn't be huge. Um Yeah, as a once-off increase in in tax and price, it would be quite substantial. That would create a big shock to many markets. I I would admit that, a very big shock. But when we look at countries that have had, you know, really big changes, that were really ambitious in tax policy change, you know, whether it's tobacco or alcohol, we've mentioned the Philippines and South Africa are two great case studies. You know, in South Africa, the tobacco prices in order to, you know, became such a big case study it, it caused a sort of a 40% over a 20 30 year period this occurred but you know consumption uh, declined by about 40% and smoking prevalence declined by about um by about a third to a half depending on on, on, the, on the different cutoffs so there's really big changes in um in in tobacco use in south africa over a period of time but that result, that that was due to an increase in taxes um, of about more than 500% in inflation adjusted terms over a 20 30 year period and an increase in prices of well over 300% during that period of time. So you know so a 50% increase is not um over a long period of time is not um, of the scale of even of the order of magnitude of what South Africa or the Philippines did. Mm. If it's a single shock at a point in time yeah I mean that's that that that's significant and uh, it would create quite a behaviour change if, it, if that were to be implemented at one point in time. That said, you know, fifty percent on a very low price in absolute is, is big percentage term, but low in absolute terms. And in many cases, a lot of alcohol products, particularly mm. cheap products, in many in many lower middle income countries, are actually quite cheap. And so, mm. the absolute changes of a fifty percent increase wouldn't be huge, but the relative change is large.
0: Yeah, and I think this is a great explanation. I come to think again about your point on design so that it's also introduced um, in a smart way and that it's staggered. I wanted to finish, um, Evan, by, I think, bringing together a number of points that you have uh, made with one final question. Obviously, we are uh, in the times of coronavirus crisis and massive impact on economies, but also a really sharp focus on the importance of health system functioning and healthy populations. Maybe even, um, I hope I'm not dreaming, but maybe even the importance of health promotion. So we, I feel like. Both these elements that you talked about um, for excise taxes, alcohol excise taxes to um, raise revenue, but also to reduce alcohol consumption and harm and to promote health are right now very much uh, top of mind, so to say, for many policymakers. And I just wanted to ask you, in this kind of situation with the work you are doing on the alcohol taxation manual, Do you have um, countries lined up that that are asking WHO for more support? Can you see that there is this kind of increasing need? What's the reality that you are navigating here with WHO? As you said, you are this member states based organization and and you're supposed to serve member states. So if you could share this reality, I think that would be really super. Yeah,
1: I think there's two elements to this, the sort of the, the strategic, the, the immediate COVID lens to it, and then how we actually then operationalize um better support to member states. Um so I think you know, we're in this sort of situation where, you know, for all the wrong reasons, health has come to the fall. Um, you know, I don't I don't think there's been a time in, you know, in probably in our lifetimes, I think if we go, you know, longer periods it might be different. But you know, I think, yeah, I, I, I'm a kid of the '80s, so I don't know. I don't think I'm not quite. A, I'm not a millennial. I don't know quite where I fit in. But if I think through, like, at least my consciousness, you know, the 1990s, for the most part, um, in in the world was 1990s and early 2000s. We had a lot of relative economic stability. Um, I would say the global financial crisis in 2009, which was a big economic shock. Um, but without, with the, with the exception of that, we've had a remarkable period of economic stability uh, in the world. Uh, if you take a long a long-term view with fewer macroeconomic shocks. Uh, at the same time, health was evolving. We were having disease transitions uh, first in high income countries and then in middle income countries from infectious disease and yeah. you know, chronic diseases coming to the fore because now that's the the primary health concern uh, as as economies became more developed. In a lot of places in the world, in South Africa, we had you know significant challenges with HIV and TB, for example. Uh, and that created very specific health checks. Uh, and I do recall how it became an economic issue in South Africa, because mm. not only the economic cost of treatment, but the the, the economic costs of, of mortality and morbidity, and particularly people dying at productive ages. Um, and so we're now having this on a global level. Um, and so there's two sides of that. One is I think that there's a far greater interest in understanding how health affects the economy. I think we've, we've seen for the first time on a global scale and such a cataclysmic scale in a long time that a health event has been the cause of a major economic crisis. Um, and so, you know, hopefully that takes, gets people, policymakers uh, in the economic sector to identify, understand and prepare better for, um, For the economic risks of health, yeah, and we have the slow-burning crisis with respect to NCDs uh, over the long term as well. And hopefully, this can can draw some attention to it. Um, You know, as uh, what what we're seeing is NCDs affecting people of productive working ages a lot more. We also see NCDs because they're chronic diseases are expensive to treat. Because we don't we don't treat somebody with diabetes for six months as a uh, as a terminal illness. We're treating them for decades as um, as productive members of society. So um, that's the one side of it. The second side is that fiscally, this has just changed the landscape. I don't think we've seen a fiscal crisis like this um, of this magnitude that, that I can recall. At any time within the last, since the Second World War. Um, mm. And you know, there's two sides of the fiscal crisis, or three sides. One is that governments are spending way more money. Um, a lot of that money is not actually necessarily being spent on the health sector and treating COVID related disease. Um, in many countries, the cost of vaccine treatment, et cetera, are actually dwarfed in comparison to the costs of the social programs and the social safety nets as a result of the economic carnage of it. So whether it's unemployment insurance or economic uh, benefits to to safeguard people's um, uh, livelihoods. The the second side to that is, we've also seen a lot of tax incentives. Um, A lot of governments, different countries doing things differently, but a lot of countries have also been applying tax incentives. And then as well, just so that also reduces uh, tax receipts. And then at the same time, obviously, economy has collapsed in many cases, and so tax receipts, which are linked closely to economic activity, decline. Fewer people working, fewer people paying tax, fewer businesses making profits or smaller profits, fewer fewer tax receipts. So the result of it is we've seen government deficits ballooning, yeah. uh, government debt ballooning, um, and to some extent, it's a situation where the hawks, so to speak, the, the fiscal hawks, are nowhere to be seen or heard because they understand the enormity of the emergency. And there are no constraints in the emergency. You know, you're putting out the fire. You don't yeah. you, you know when you when you put when you when you're putting the fire the, the water on the fire, you're not you're not thinking what's going to be the, the impact on my water level in 10 years' time. You need to get that fire out. And so to some extent, that's what we're thinking fiscally globally. The result of it is, is that I think there's a recognition that um, the carnage that's been done fiscally as a result of COVID is, is doing two things. One, it's got to create an almost all hands on deck approach to deal with the the other side of it fiscally. So we're going to need to be raising taxes at some point in the future on a large scale, whether it's five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, tax rates will rise almost everywhere in the world. Mm. Um and so there's an opportunity to sort of start thinking: where are we going to get that tax revenue from? Mm. Um, you know, is it going to be income taxes? Is it going to be corporate taxes? Is it going to be wealth taxes? Is it going to be um, some global compact on corporate income tax? Is it going to be health taxes? So we've, we, there's, there's that unique positioning, and you know, looking at, at you know at, at what what's coming out of. Uh, you know, work that's coming out of the IMF at the moment, but what's really encouraging is firstly is there's an all-hands-on-deck. I think the IMF has sent the signal that, you know, that there's going to be no silver bullets to fix this and that's going to have to be broad-based. Um, but, I mean, the IMF are outright pointing towards how um, health taxes are going to be an important part of this recovery on the tax side. And they're outlying clearly that this is really a, a, a good tax because not only is it going to raise revenues that we're going to need but it also yeah. is going to have this important uh, uh important health benefits and yeah. you know and they, and, they, and they talk about specifically um a quote from here you know around such as alcohol tobacco petroleum and increasingly unhealthy foods and plastic waste so they really are setting up how the importance of of excise tax you know, and they say they, they go on to say they are generally motivated by a desire to internalize externalities, deal with health concerns associated with addictive consumption, um, relatively easy to collect, um, oh. a, a good revenue yield, um, often room to increase excise revenues further through a combination of better design, pro- improved enforcement, and higher tax rates. That's the IMF. You know, um, sounds like they talked with you. We talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, i would i would say we we you know i think i think uh um there's this I, I have I, I will say straight up that the collaboration that is occurring uh between various u n agencies and the financial side like the imf and the world bank the oecd the undp on the development side and 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 other international organizations like global fund and gavi i think there's a there's there really is a strong uh much greater collaboration on health taxes now than ever before and it's, so that's that's really encouraging so on that strategic side i think there's 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 a lot of important pathways over the next over the next years um mm-hmm. around health taxes but that goes to a practical level well it's you know it's great that they're saying that but now what are, what are we able to do what are we going to do what's yes. who's ability to actually work with member states um so I think there are member states that we're already working with on, on alcohol tax policy. Um, some, some of them, it's a result of strong relationships that we built with ministries of finance, ministries of health, revenue authorities over the years on th- the tobacco side, where we've been providing technical assistance to member states for, for 10, 15 years. So we built those strong relationships, those trusts. Uh, we understand their needs. We understand their challenges. Um, we we understand their fiscal systems, their, their, their policy-making systems, we then we're able to sort of tailor support to them. Um, other, on other times I think it's countries just recognizing need or importance and, and, and reaching out to us. Um, and, and so what does our work look like? I think on the one hand, we you know we 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 create the normative side. So it's for example the manual or um it's creating a, a database you know on uh, on 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 tobacco we've got a fantastic database that we are able to uh, track taxes in terms of tax structures tax rates prices um with a lot of detail how they're implemented administrative etc every year as it comes out as part of the who global report on the tobacco epidemic um, and we've been doing that for 10 years we, we as part of for instance the global status report on alcohol we don't have that depth of data yet in that so i think in addition to that, we need to we need to improve our data because if you say to me now, can you tell me which countries in the world have this tax structure? And I yeah, I, I know a few based on, on on things, but we don't have a systematic uh, a strong systematic database yet, and we need to do that. But the the way we then provide that technical assistance to member states is is working directly with them uh, to be able to analyze their market, to understand their challenges, to provide the analytic support to understand how various policy changes are going to affect consumption and revenue and health outcomes, uh, to understand what uh, how that might influence uh, health financing, um, to better prepare them to deal with the arguments that come up within a policy making process, whether that's questions from members of parliament or um, or, 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 or opposition from industry, um, yeah. et cetera. So um, we, we, we need to provide provide that support to them. Um, historically, you know, have we provided a lot of that on alcohol? It's been relatively limited. Um, but we're really trying to scale up that work at the moment. We we sense that there's momentum on the issue, um, that there maybe wasn't five, 10 years ago, that um, there's the strong momentum around not just alcohol taxes, but, but health taxes more broadly. Uh, and and it's important then for us to support member states as they do. It. Part of it is 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 then as well collaboration uh, with civil society, and I think that's important to us. I think we've seen that in other areas of work that uh, collaboration with civil society is a critical part of that in the way that civil society are able to uh, engage with the public, uh, engage in the political process, uh, effectively to 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 be able to communicate um and and to be able to bring this to the attention the reality is um you know our, our government's going to just randomly suddenly decide that alcohol tax is important um i mean it can happen but it's unlikely to happen by itself and so it needs civil society to sort of yeah. to just to, to help set that agenda and encourage governments and and also to encourage a collaboration within governments um at the end of the day tax policy uh development occurs within ministries of finance within revenue authorities mm-hmm. um and that's not a traditional area uh, of work for us it's not a traditional area of work for, for for public health so how do we then uh sort of navigate that and uh and, and build that relationship between the health sector and the finance sector
0: yeah Yeah, thanks so much um, for outlining, I think, the future for health taxes and alcohol excise taxes. I was very encouraged uh, to hear about the IMF's, I think, increasing understanding of the win-win nature. And I'm also very encouraged uh, to hear about uh, some more details, how you at WHO, together with other colleagues, are working now to... Uh, I think, increase the momentum and build on the momentum, as as you were saying, because that's what we also hear from from governments where uh, our members are working, that they are interested in this. They have made uh, experiences, as you were saying, Evan, in tobacco taxation and tobacco control, and they feel like we would like to apply this now to other unhealthy products. So this is really encouraging. And I just want to thank you uh, once again for taking the time Thank you for this conversation, Evan. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you very much, Mark. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to advance evidence-based alcohol taxation on global, regional, and country levels. To do so, we want to help enhance understanding of and capacity for addressing critical issues around alcohol taxation, such as the evidence base, the framing, the design, and affordability issues around alcohol. In the show notes, we share key resources with you about alcohol taxation, and you can find links to the scientific work of Dr. Evan Bletcher on health taxes so far. We also share more resources about the potential of alcohol taxes for instance, in the context of the SDGs. And if you have feedback, questions and sh- suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear and read from you. My email address is mike.dynbier at You can also reach me on Twitter and find my contact details in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues Podcast is made by Arin Pigno, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünbier. Our theme music for this episode comes from LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues Podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and stay well and safe and talk to you soon.